From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a conversation with U.S. Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. This is the fight of our lives. The fight to build an America where dreams are possible and America that works for everyone. On February 19th, 2019, Elizabeth Warren announced that she was going to run for president of the United States. And that is why I stand here today to declare that I am a candidate for president of the United States of America. The senator from the state of Massachusetts is a relative newcomer to politics. She was first elected in 2012. Now, after a full year of traveling across the country campaigning... Primary elections are finally here, and Senator Warren has begun to see the impact of her effort. But it's been a little disappointing. Thank you so much. So listen, it is too close to call, so I'm just going to tell you what I do know. In Iowa, she came in third place with 18% of the vote, behind Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders. What a night! Because tonight... An improbable hope became an undeniable reality. And now it is on to New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. In New Hampshire, she came in fourth place with less than 10% of the vote. She was behind Pete Buttigieg, Senator Sanders, and this time also behind Senator Amy Klobuchar. My heart is full tonight. While there are still ballots left to count, we have beaten the odds every step of the way. Senator Warren touts herself as a progressive candidate who wants to make big, sweeping structural changes in the United States. She's vehemently anti-corruption and was a leader in creating the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. There'll be a lot of Democrats who will fight you on this. But I really believed after the crash, this was our chance to get an agency that would make sure that people didn't get cheated. But for many progressives, she's not progressive enough. Some cite her previous political affiliation. She was a Republican for a good part of her life. And supporters of Bernie Sanders say he is the truly progressive candidate, and they've shown their support at the polls so far. Let me take this opportunity to thank the people of New Hampshire for a great victory tonight. On the flip side, while Bernie Sanders secured the most votes in New Hampshire, he did so with a much smaller margin than in 2016. And so far, more delegates have gone to moderate candidates like Pete Buttigieg, Senator Klobuchar, and former Vice President Joe Biden than to Sanders or Warren. But you know this fundamental question about how we bring our party together? We have to think about it in new ways. Still, an upbeat Elizabeth Warren says the fight is far from over. She spoke to me from Arlington, Virginia, just before going on stage for a town hall. We spoke about immigration, her views on the future of Puerto Rico, and her selfie game. 
Senator Warren, thank you so much for joining me on Latino USA. Thank you. It's good to be on this call with you. I wish I was right there next to you so you could be taking selfie number <laughs> 55,600. <laughs> oh, we passed 55,000 a long time ago, but you're right. <laughs> Come on, you're counting? It's fun to do the selfies. Actually, we do uh, in a rough sort of sense. Uh we count based on the number of people who come to an event and the rough proportion that stay. And of course, the funny thing about the selfie lines is that uh, it's lots of different poses and lots of different combinations. So it's fun. Oh my God. It truly is. <laughs> but it's very, as we say in Spanish, desgastante. It, it is, <laughs> it, it feeds you, but it also can deplete you. You know, it keeps me grounded, though, um, because it's so easy in politics to spend all your time with advisors and people who are deeply into this issue and that issue and, you know, say, hey, we've got to worry about 24-7G and, you know, use lots of shorthand. It's the selfie lines where I hear from people who, you know, the— the mama and the little girl who came through the line not so long ago. And she was delightful, had sparkles everywhere and, you know, uh, ribbons in her hair. And we posed and we pinky promised. And then as she bounced off, her mother gave me a hug and said, please fight for health care. And she nodded to her daughter and said, she has brain cancer and we need your help. And those are the things that remind you, everything we're talking about, it's not, it's not in the abstract. It's not, you know, just an issue. It's live human beings behind every one of these questions. Their lives are on the line, and we need to get this right in 2020. And, and the thing about running for president is, you know me, I'm a, I, I was a public school teacher. I was a special ed teacher. I then eventually became a law professor. I've spent my whole life about studying what's gone wrong for working families, studying bankruptcy, why families go broke. But the joy of running for president is to have the chance to talk about here are paths out of this. Here are plans where we can actually fix this. We can turn this around. We can build a way to change that. So um, you are very much appreciated for having very progressive politics, for having, uh, for being a woman who basically, yes, and I'll, I'll let you own that, having a plan for how to work things out. So when you look at the fact that Bernie Sanders, also a very progressive candidate, he seems to be doing so well with Latino and Latina voters, a very strong ground game. Um, how do you explain that? Like, why is—how do you understand—and, and you know, if you do self-criticism, did he just have a better ground game in understanding the importance of reaching Latino and Latina voters? So, look, I can't speak to someone else's campaign. I really make a point of trying not to do that. Everyone gets out there and runs their own campaign. Um, well, then take the question and apply it to—, to And I'll take it the other way. Yeah. Yep. I started a year ago 
from uh, not having run for president before, not having, not having been in politics very long. Uh, so when I started building this, it was important to me to build a campaign that was going to be grassroots and entirely inclusive. Um, and that meant everything from the people I hire to the issues I tackle, to the on-the-ground organizers, and to the places we go. Uh, I think the one of the very first places I went to have a town hall after I became a presidential candidate was to Puerto Rico uh, and to talk about there, quite openly, the issues facing Puerto Rico. And I hope we get to talk more about that because I've I've been engaged in those issues for a very long time, long before I was a presidential candidate and long before the hurricanes. I mean, really talking about debt and Wall Street and all of it. But it's also been trying to build out and to build respectfully and inclusively. Um, Julian Castro and I, when Julian decided uh, to end his campaign for president, I was— I was very sorry about it. I talked with Julian many times during the campaign. And I called him when he made that decision. And I said, can we work together, you and I, and build a better, stronger campaign? And I wanted to be able to, to uh, adopt many of the ideas, already had adopted many of the ideas that Julian had put forward. Uh, like decriminalizing border crossings and his work on uh, pre-K for three-year-olds and four-year-olds, uh, but really wanted to work more as a partner with Julian. And like all campaigns should be, we are still a work in progress. I am still growing and learning and, I hope, doing better every single day. And I get a lot of help from my friends, and I'm grateful for that. So, Senator, let's talk about Puerto Rico because it's true. You've been talking about yes. Puerto Rico for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, very specifically, you've been involved because of the question of the debt. In 2017, you actually proposed a Marshall Plan for Puerto Rico. Do you support debt forgiveness entirely for Puerto Rico and the repeal of the Jones Act? Uh, so, yes, I uh, have had a plan for a long time that is effectively permitting Puerto Rico to make its own decision to uh, go through debt relief. Think of it this way on debt relief for Puerto Rico. If Puerto Rico were a giant corporation, Puerto Rico would have declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy years and years and years ago. And it would have assembled assets— uh, paid some of them to the creditors, written off the rest of the debt, and then all new dollars that came in would have been used in investing in Puerto Rico. Uh, if Puerto Rico had been a city, Puerto Rico could have declared bankruptcy and gone through exactly that process. If Puerto Rico had been an independent country, Puerto Rico, it's not called bankruptcy, but effectively could have gone through the same process uh, through the World Bank and, and dealt with its outstanding debts. The whole notion is that there are structures in law to be able to deal with debt overloads that end up crushing a person, a company, or a country. 
But none of that is legally available to Puerto Rico. And the consequence of that is that year after year after year, Wall Street continues to suck value out of Puerto Rico and take it away from hospitals, from schools, from Puerto Rico's very future. And it does this with the support of the United States Congress, with the support of the United States government. And think of it like this. Who's going to go invest in Puerto Rico if they believe that Puerto Rico is going to have this debt overhang that's going to mean that every effort to try to support public schools or pave public roads or keep hospitals open— will constantly be under assault from a Wall Street creditor that has first rights to take value. It's just wrong. And and so what you're really laying out is a structural problem with how Puerto Rico and its economy is tied to the United States. So yes. do you think do you think that Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States? I think that Puerto Rico should be treated with respect. And that means the people of Puerto Rico should have a right to self-determination. I want to see a straight-up vote out of Puerto Rico, a full and fair. And if the people of Puerto Rico want to declare themselves independent, then we should acknowledge that and say that's fine. If they want to be a state and be the 51st state in the United States, I'm good with that too. But I want this to start from a position of respect for the people of Puerto Rico. Self-determination. Decide what you want, and then I'll go along. Okay. Very specific. You're not saying, uh, I, wanna, I want Puerto Rico to have a chance to vote on there. You're saying self-determination, what they decide is what goes. That's, that's exactly right. I think Puerto Rico has had enough of people in the rest of the country telling them what they are and what they— will get and what they are and are not entitled to. I just, enough. Coming up on Latino USA, our conversation with Senator Elizabeth Warren continues and we turn to immigration. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code LATINO. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. Planet Money is the man who popularized recycling by making a deal with the mafia. It's the bedroom beats maker making hits for Drake and Nicki Minaj and the woman trying to get her money back from Venmo. Planet Money from NPR.
Hey, we're back. And we're speaking with Democratic candidate for the presidency, Elizabeth Warren. In this part of our conversation, we dive into what she would do about immigration in her first 100 days and how she feels about her performance so far. So we're going to talk a little bit now about immigration. Um, mm-hmm. You have one of the most comprehensive plans of any of the candidates out there. You have called for a pathway to citizenship. But I'm interested in, you know, you you identified previously years ago as a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, back many years ago, some Republicans like Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush were actually very progressive on immigration, if you will. But Can you explain how your opinion around immigration got formed? So I was born and raised in Oklahoma. Uh, I have three brothers. Uh, Two of them are still Republicans. Uh, You know, I'm I'm like a lot of folks. I come from a family that has a a broad range of political views. I I like to think I'm going to get a vote, uh, get the vote, though, from all of them. So, So that's a good starting place. You know, my views around uh, immigration and the how immigration strengthens our nation probably started as a teacher and seeing in my classrooms how how much stronger our classes are, how much stronger our thinking is, how much more we can do when we're not all alike. And that immigrants bring their own perspective, their own worldviews, their own energy and determination. And I realize how they make our country stronger. Immigration does not make our country weaker. It makes it stronger, stronger economically, stronger ties around the world. But I saw it first in my classrooms, and then I saw it in my own family. Uh, What do you mean? My daughter— Mm-hmm. My daughter married a young man who uh, immigrated to the United States uh, in his early 20s. He came from India uh, from a family that was village India, uh, and uh, he didn't grow up speaking English. Uh, he taught himself English mostly in high school when he was near a place that had a television set. And watching sitcoms, uh, that's that's how he learned English. Um, he immigrated to the United States. None of his family had ever thought of such a thing. But he came here to build. Uh, and he ended up uh, getting uh, his education over here. He met my daughter in school. Uh, they married and... Uh, he um, he eventually became a citizen, and my three grandchildren uh, carry dual passports. Uh, and it's not only the fact that my three grandchildren are the light of my life and uh, also of Bruce's, but it's also to see how he adds to America, adds just— Another perspective, another it's like another layer of the growth that makes America so extraordinary. So this year for Christmas, you'll laugh, but we had 
Aunt B's green jello salad, which <laughs> dates back to somewhere in the 1930s and probably is the same dang jello. Uh, I can give you the whole recipe if you want it. Uh, everyone makes fun of it, but I will say everybody also eats it all up. And at the same time, we had tandoori chicken uh, and uh, uh, sag paneer. And to me, what could you ask for that's better? That's an America that takes the old stuff and the new stuff. And you know what? My granddaughters will add another layer to it. So at one point, your daughter's now husband, Mm -hmm. before he became a citizen, he had a green card, which Mm -hmm. meant that he was actually incredibly vulnerable. Yes. Because there was a time in this country when having a green card formed a kind of protection, but, Mm -hmm. you know, there isn't any. So I want to get more specific with you in terms of your positions on immigration, Mm -hmm. given where we are in the country right now. So will you call if you are elected president, for an absolute halt to all deportations. Stop. Period. Yes. So I am absolutely clear that we're going to stop deportations and in the, for the first hundred days until we can review every outstanding case and make certain that there is no one who is being deported in any way that is inconsistent with my overall views as president of the United States. The way I see it is that we need an immigration system that expands legal immigration, that keeps families together, that provides for a pathway to citizenship for the estimated 11 million people who are here who are undocumented, not not just for dreamers, this is for for everyone uh, who fits in that, and that we do not deport anyone uh, uh, if it is inconsistent with those principles of how we start. So I'm trying to understand, because that is, you're saying 100 days. Uh Uh-huh. I guess the reason why I'm asking is because you understand kind of from a structural place that there is, exists now, an immigration detention and deportation industrial complex. It is multi, multi-million dollars. So that's why I'm getting very specific. You're like, well, 100 days. And I'm saying, after 100 days, will you be prepared to start shutting down detention facilities to actually start— Oh, I'm clear on this. I want to shut down for-profit detention centers from the beginning. I don't believe that anyone should be making a profit from locking people up. I want to shut down for-profit detention centers. I want to shut down for-profit prisons. I think they are fundamentally wrong and that they are not part of the American legal system and should not be used. And the point you're making, I, I, no one makes this point. And I'm really glad you are because I want to underline it. The point you're making about money to be made in the current system of deportations, as you say, a a lock-up-and-deport complex that makes millions of dollars. This is a point I make over and over and over about the, the decisions that get made in Washington and how they are influenced by money. And that's true 
whether we're talking about immigration, we're talking about the price of prescription drugs, we're talking about getting um, uh, even reasonable background checks and getting weapons of war off our streets uh, to to reduce gun violence, Um, whether we're talking about climate change, over and over and over. If there is a decision to be made in Washington, it has been influenced by money, by campaign contributions, by lobbyists, by lawyers, by bought-and-paid-for experts, by tilted think tanks, by PR firms. So I believe we need an anti-corruption plan to disrupt the influence of money. Here's the good news. I have the biggest anti-corruption plan since Watergate. Here's the bad news. We need the biggest anti-corruption plan since Watergate. It's got a bunch of moving parts to it, but the point is to disrupt the influence of money. So yes, I make the commitment on closing for-profit prisons. I'm there. I'm willing to stand up to the deportation industry, but it's more than just an immigration. It's being felt all the way through our system. And this is where we need to join our fights together to fight back against the influence of money in Washington. What about government-run immigrant detention facilities? Are you prepared to start closing those as well when you become president? Yes, because we're not going to need nearly so many. We're not, we may need a small amount. There may be some people for whom this is necessary. But this deportation process has got to stop. Are you prepared to make a commitment to bring back parents who have been deported and separated from their children? Are, what is your commitment specifically regarding, for example, the children, like all of these families that have been swept up in zero tolerance? What is the specificity of your commitment that you're making to them and to families who have been separated? We need to be a country that lives our values every single day. And that means we do not separate children from their families. We do not take away parents from their children. I believe in unifying our families, bringing our families back together. You'll specifically say things like, we're going to open up these files and I want you to find the parents of these children. Like that level of specificity, you're prepared to do that? Yes. Yes, I am. I, as I said, I have grandchildren. I can't imagine. And I, I hear this in town halls, almost every town hall I do, please remember the children who have been separated from their parents. Please remember the little ones who have been traumatized for life. And we don't have a time machine. We can't undo the wrong things we could have done. But we can at least try to get them back into their parents' arms and offer the comfort of the family back together. That's what I believe in. Senator, we're going to talk about numbers, um, and and this is a little bit, you know, the, the hard realities of numbers. Your fundraising is falling behind other candidates, um, but of course you have candidates like Mike Bloomberg who don't have to worry about that, and I'm sure that at this point you expect it to be doing better, not only in terms of the results, but in terms of the fundraising. What is your plan to drum up support to keep your campaign alive as you move in? Um, and a difficult question, you're staying in? Absolutely. And in fact, since Iowa, we've raised $6 million online. Uh, Think about what that means. 
People who said through $5 contributions and $25 contributions, I want you in this fight, and I am in this fight with you. Now, look, I get it. Michael Bloomberg, he can, you know, put his pocket change in, and that's enough to buy tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising. And other candidates have decided they're going to finance their campaign by spending, what, 70% of their time with billionaires and corporate executives and listening to how they see the world. Me, I made the decision when I got in this that I was going to fund this entirely from the grassroots. If we are in America where the only way you get to be the Democratic nominee is either you are a billionaire or you spend most of your time sucking up to billionaires, then we're going to have an America that works better and better for billionaires and worse and worse for everybody else's family. So, Senator, to close this interview, I want to ask you, and I've asked this to all the candidates who I've interviewed, very specifically, what is your pitch to Latina, Latino voters in the United States? Um, And there are, as you know, several states coming up with large populations of Latinos and Latinas. So of all of the candidates, why should they vote for you? I don't believe anyone on the Democratic side can get elected without uh, the Latinx uh, participation and votes. And Latinos and Latinas should make their voices heard. We have an America right now. That works great for those at the top. It works great for billionaires. It works great for giant corporations. It works great for those who want to make money by locking up children at the border. Um, It works great for them, but it's not working great for our families. We have this remarkable opportunity in 2020 to turn that around, this remarkable opportunity to build an America where everybody gets a chance, where everyone's child is worth investing in. I never thought I'd be in politics. I wanted to be a teacher all my life. My daddy ended up as a janitor. My mom worked a minimum wage job at Sears. I I wasn't supposed to be here. I wasn't supposed to have any of these chances. But for me, the door opened with a commuter college that cost $50 a semester. And that's how I got to be a special education teacher. And from there, it was another door that opened and another door that opened. I believe in opportunity. And I'm so deeply, deeply grateful for the opportunity that was given to me by American taxpayers who made investments in our public schools. And the way I pay it back is I get up every day with a heart filled with gratitude and a heart filled with determination to fight for all of our kids. That's why I'm in this, and I'm loving every minute of it. Thank you so much for speaking with me on Latino USA, Senator. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. Elizabeth Warren is a member of the U.S. Senate and is seeking the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. This episode was produced by Miguel Macias with help from Antonia Cerejido and edited by Sofia Palizacá. 
The Latino USA team includes Janice Yamoka and Alisa Escarce, with help from Joanne DeLuna. Special thanks for this episode to the entire In the Thick team, Julio Ricardo Barrera, Nicole Rothwell, and Noor Saudi. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our production manager is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our interns are Julia Inés Esparza and Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. And a big thank you to Raul Perez, who brought so much light and happiness and joy into our newsroom. We're going to miss you, Raul. Best of luck. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. I'll see you there. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. The Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, the Dominican fusion band Yacer Tejeda and Palotre talk to us about how they're spreading local Afro roots music across the country. That's next time on Latino USA.